You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments, that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and you give glory together with your eternal Father and your all holy, gracious, and life-giving spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome back to all of our participants here for our Sunday Gospel Reflection. Hello, Annie Mitchell. Father Hezekiah, how are you? Happy New Year from a Roman Catholic. <laughs> it is. I know it's not your New Year in the Byzantine tradition, but. Yes. Well, yes. Not all of us can be as super trad as I am. That was a joke. <laughs> okay. No. I Annie's referring to the fact that the, the in the Byzantine tradition, oh. yes. The yeah. uh, New Year begins on September 1st. Indeed. The liturgical New Year. And of course, Roman Catholic practice today begins at the first Sunday of Advent, which we are preparing for as we speak. Yes. And Annie's point out her super trad barbecue lighter and yep. uh, lighting Light her my candle. First candle. Here we Look go, ladies and gentlemen. It's getting real. Are you allowed to light that before Sunday? I don't know. Yeah. We're going to pretend like it is Sunday. Here we are. Isaiah chapter 63. Annie, yes. give us give us our passages that we're looking at today. Go ahead. Yeah. For the first Sunday of Advent, we head to the prophet Isaiah. Now, <laughs> stick with me here. All right. Isaiah 63 verses 16 and 17 and then verse 19. I got to look up what verse 18 is. I mean, this is too. That's Go ahead. I know, right? And then chapter 64 verses two through seven so let's let's do that again in case you're writing this down in your notebook isaiah 63 verses 16 and 17 and verse 19 and then chapter 64 verses two through seven the responsorial psalm is taken from psalm 80 the gospel we are starting the year of St. Mark, Mark chapter 13, verses 33 through 37. And the epistle is St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. And we will grab that verse 18, by the way, because here at Sunday Gospel Reflections with the ICC, it's all about context context yep and verse 18 nails that context for us so by skipping it we kind of lose sight of it but it's important for us not to lose sight of it here in our bible study so uh isaiah chapter 63 starting with verse 16 16 through 17 to read from my bible or do you want me to read the lectionary version what people will hear at mass well go ahead and give us our lectionary version that's what we do every time and then we'll come back and fill in the gaps okay that's that's great here we go You, Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer. You are named forever. Why do you let us wander, O Lord, from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down with the mountains quaking before you. While you wrought awesome deeds, we could not hope for, such as they had not heard of from of old no ear has ever heard no eye ever seen any god but you doing such deeds for those who wait for him would that you might meet us doing right that we were mindful of you in our ways behold you are angry and we are sinful all of us have become like unclean people all our good deeds are like polluted rags 
We have all withered like leaves, and our guilt carries us away like the wind. There is none who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to cling to you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have delivered us up to our guilt. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you the potter. We are all the work of your hands. All right. So just to get the big, big context first, before we maybe get the the more concentrated context, remind us what we need to know about Isaiah. And actually, why is he so prevalent during Advent? Well, he's, uh, he's, you know, first of all, one of the major prophets and prophesies the restoration of, of God's people after the Babylonian exile. Well, begins by warning them of the impending doom, which is the time in which he's living, in which he sees the Assyrians march upon the north, upon the northern ten tribes, Israel, and is conquered. And then prophesies then the coming of the Babylonians. And then in the section we're looking at, prophesies the restoration. But that restoration doesn't go all that well. And right. so his prophecy of restoration is mixed in with what God's going to do with God, with what's with what's wrong with the people. As we've said many, many times, this they return from Babylon after seven years of exile and not everything goes well. We'll have a chance to look at that. But first, Take a look again at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, and you're going to get that context of when Isaiah is prophesying, because you're going to get the kings, right? And your list of kings is going to get be given to you then in 2 Kings, those kings at least, that, that he's mentioning there, right? So you're going to be in looking in 2 Kings chapter 19, for example, you've got Hezekiah, and in Isaiah chapter 1, verse verse one you've got hezekiah so you got the guys before hezekiah leading up to hezekiah and these guys are like great i mean ahaz if you don't know anything about the bible you know ahaz is not a good guy and likewise king hezekiah if you know anything about the bible you know that his king hezekiah was one of the truly holy holy kings and leaders of god's people right we know this i mean there's a basic biblical literacy which all of you are very aware of. The life of King Hezekiah is given there to you in Second Kings, in you know this whole before the Ahaz is back there in Second Kings chapter sixteen. So if you want to really do your research and your work, you're going to go back to Second Kings chapter, you know, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, right in there, seventeen, eighteen, and then you're going to have the context that you need to understand what's going on because Ahaz. He's like the, he's like the pimple, right? I mean, you get the pustule and the pimple. Sorry, I hope you're not watching this while eating breakfast, ladies and gentlemen. This guy is the Ahaz is the worst, right? And so, yeah. yeah, yeah. So Isaiah sees all of this, and then, and then, uh, and then prophesies uh, what's about to take place. In Jerusalem, but then, of course, the famous passage in Isaiah is the beginning of that restoration. Isaiah chapter 40, comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. The glory of the Lord is going to return. Everything's going to be okay, right? It's all going to happen, right? But as a matter of fact, Annie, it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And, and, and well, it doesn't, it doesn't, right? The good yeah. things start to happen, um, and we pick that up in Ezra chapter 1. You don't have to flip there, but you can. Ezra chapter 1, the story of King Cyrus, the Persian, giving God's people freedom, sending them back. Look at verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the, the Lord, the God, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. and then. Take a look at verse 7. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar carried away from Jerusalem. That was in 2 Kings chapter 25. And placed in the house of the Lord, uh, in the house of his gods. And Cyrus king of Persia brought these out and charged Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out and so forth. And, and now he's already basins. Look at thousands. Verse 9. Thousands of basins of gold. And oh, Lord, he's going to load these guys down with 
all that is necessary to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, right? That's what their job is to do right there. So they head back. But 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 now we encounter Isaiah 63. They're back in the promised land. And he's prophesying their return, at least. But notice what he says. You, Lord, are our father, our redeemer. I'm back now in our reading, right? Isaiah 63, verse 16 and following, 17. Why do you let us wander, O Lord, from your ways and harden our hearts that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants. So things don't go well, right? In fact, if I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot of flipping today, but you know what? We've got to get exercise because you got a couple extra pounds from Thanksgiving and you got to get it off. So we're going to turn back really quick to Nehemiah, Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And in Nehemiah chapter, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 36. So Ezra and Nehemiah are two of the guys that return. Mm -hmm. And look at verse 36, chapter 9, Nehemiah 9, 36. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that thou gavest to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. So things don't go all that well. They come back to the promised land and life isn't as peachy as Cyrus had promised. But it's not Cyrus's fault. It's the fault of the people who have found themselves with hardened hearts. And why have they found themselves with hardened hearts? Turn your Bibles with me to Haggai. Haggai, you're like, where in the world is Haggai? We'll go to Maccabees and work yourselves backwards. If it depends on how your Bible's laid out there, but you should be able to find Haggai uh, fairly easy. One of the so-called minor prophets, but he's, as far as I'm concerned, he's a major prophet because he's so important. He's so short. And yet he gives us real treasure as to what's going on. And uh, you'll notice, you'll notice Haggai begins in the second year of Darius, the king, uh, the king, and as some have, have, have guessed that Darius may be another name for Cyrus. Hmm. On the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. Now, if you go, if you, you know, I'm, I'm not going to you flip back there, but if you were reading in Ezra chapter two, verses one and two, you're going to see Zerubbabel. So this Haggai. And Ezra, Ezra is your historical context, and Nehemiah, your historical context for Zerubbabel and the, the guys returning. So Haggai is writing during this period. Notice what Haggai says, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? Well, this house lies in ruins. So they come back with the gold. But you see, verse seven of Haggai, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider how you have fared. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. And then I may appear in my glory, says the Lord. You have looked for much and lo, it came to little. And, and when you brought it home, it blew away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because my house lies in ruins while you busy your house with your own house. Okay, so there's there's your context. The people of God are returned from Babylon physically, but their hearts are far from the Lord. Yeah, and the result is there's famine in the land. There's the crops aren't growing. The people of God. And so Isaiah gives the spiritual end of this. While Haggai is giving the historical thing saying, what are you guys doing? You're You're all busy about. I remember I felt like this when I was when I was first um when I was first ordained a priest and 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 uh sent to my assignment and I wanted we'd been in an older building it was a beautiful little church but it was so tiny like it, it had been a chicken coop honest to god it had purchased as a chicken coop and then the process had converted to a church and we bought it from the this thing was old it was old and it was tiny I had more people seeing the parking lot during church than in the church that's how that's how tiny this thing was. But I met with with some some leaders of the community who all, I mean, had done very well for themselves. God bless them, hard workers. And they all had houses, very nice. I would visit their homes, bless their homes. And I said, well, is there's there's another church that we can purchase and make a beautiful temple of God for God and everything? No, 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 Father, we we can't, we don't think we can do that. So their their vision was focused on now, I would say for 
many of those have grown spiritually and now can see the beauty of what God can do if we open our hearts to to that uh the possibility of God's work but here in Isaiah chapter 63 Isaiah is talking about is is crying out if you will and that's the beauty of the prophets Isaiah is crying out on behalf of the people and saying hey Lord why don't you come down and get this situation right now this you sounds... want me to call down fire from heaven? Sounds yes. like the apostles, you know, telling Jesus to. This, doesn't this sound applicable today, Annie? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You got, I mean, you, you got uh, abortion is rampant. You got the homosexuals infecting. I mean, even some hallways of the church. I came across this article. This priest sent this article to me this week. Silence in the face of the homosexual infestation of the clergy. Hmm. Now, I don't want you guys to think I'm a complete radical, <laughs> but it's true. We've got a problem. And, and I, for one, would love to see the Lord rain down fire from heaven. However, I know after further thought that if he did this on all unrighteousness, Father Hezekiah will be the first to be licked up. Yeah. And so the so 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 easy does it, does it because when the Lord comes down, mm, we might be unhappy with those that um, those that, that yeah wheat and tares thing. Yeah. yeah, you might find yourself among the uh, among the tares a little bit here. But the but in Isaiah chapter sixty three, now this is what's going on. I, I I kind of maybe I went after that a little bit long, but that's what's going on. And I it's beautiful once you realize that because now the soul's calling out. Return for the sake of your servants, Lord. Yeah. The tribes of your inheritance. Do something now about this craziness going on. And uh, and I love how this passage ends. Yet, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you the potter. We are all the work of your hands. Which is a beautiful way to end this passage. It says it's it's an it's a passage of invitation. Lord, form me. Yeah. While everyone else may have a hardened heart, while everyone else may be going down this path that looks so terrible, I mean, if this situation is bad, even in the church, Lord, form me. I invite you now because I know I'm ill-formed. I know that I've allowed myself to be formed by all sorts of other things. And now this invitation of Isaiah. So there you have it, Annie. There's my, there's my just kind of general, my context. Shall we look at the verses that got skipped? Would oh like yeah, to? because they are helpful. Yeah. So Where we, we at, started 16? 63, 16, and 17. We skipped over 18. Yeah, look at 18. Look at verse 18. It's important. Isaiah 63, 18. Thy holy people possess thy sanctuary a little while. Our adversaries have trodden it down. Hmm. So 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 Isaiah is looking at the temple mount. And he's saying, well, we while we had the, the dwelling place of God in our midst for a little while, it has been sacked, 2 Kings chapter 25, and it lies in ruins. I mean, this is now this is now 70 years have passed, maybe by the time, you know, this is Isaiah prophesying it will have passed. But nevertheless, you know, in a sense, he's looking at it in a prophetic way. And what's it look like? I mean, you you go blow a thing up and burn it to the ground and level the whole business and leave it for 70 years to weather and think about what it looked like. It was a trash heap. It's yeah. a pile of nothing, just you know, the worst. This was the dwelling place of God. And um, and uh, and so that's why we can't we can't skip that passage. What else do we skip there, Annie? Verse one. Um, yeah, we skip oh, uh, verse... We skip verse one. I know. I was going to say, this is very Father Hezekiah's kind of... Uh... Oh, th yes, that thou would <laughs> rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake in thy presence and smite thy people. This is... So good. This is good stuff. And this is important. This is important now liturgically also, even though it's, it's, it's skipped in our passage, because um because this whole time period now of advent is a time of preparation for the coming of the lord 
have a chance to talk about that a little bit more in our gospel passage, because the gospel passage, as the passages over the last few weeks have been doing, is focused very much on the coming of the Lord into Jerusalem for Passover, for his passion. And so the coming of the Lord to his to his throne city. Yeah. And would that he find a people ready for his coming. Just as he came in his first coming, so in his second. And I um, I would just say that's the whole spiritual preparation of Advent. It's not the little baby, fat baby Jesus in the, in the manger. I mean, that's cute. Yeah, it's cute. But liturgically, that's not what Christmas is all about. Um, that happened. But that won't happen again in the peace and quiet of Bethlehem, because when he comes next time, he is going to rend the heavens and the fire and the brimstone going to come down. The mountains yes? are going to quake. <laughs> so, so there you have it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I want to look at this a little bit. Does God really harden hearts? Like Isaiah was saying in here. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I was reading the church fathers on this and you know, the church fathers are, they, they have a way to, to speaking that you'd be like today. You're so, we're all so sensitive, you know, gonna, yeah, yeah. you know, and, but, but some of them are very, uh, you know, but the righteousness of God, you know, or yes, God I was reading Isidore of, of Seville. And he's like, you know, yes, God. <laughs> so, but Augustine, I think says it best. He says, is not sin also punishment for sin? And I would, I would, I would just, just maybe even soften Augustine a little bit by saying that, 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 that God never forces himself upon us. He is a God of love. And so his, he, he always comes to us in freedom. Um, and, uh, and while, he, while in certain seasons and in certain occasions, he may protect us from evil that he might bring about a great good on earth. That is not always the case. Sometimes he allows our uh, sins to take root, not because he wants them to, but because we've chosen them to. Yeah. And he leaves us in our freedom so that we might freely choose him. Augustine, it is not, is it, is not sin also punishment for sin? And I just, I just kind of, maybe we could leave it almost at that because we, we talk about the hardening, we're always talking about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, right? Right. And what happened with Pharaoh was that he, well, while God worked a great miracle in his midst, he became more interested in his own affairs, right? Hello, Babylonian returnees, more interested in his own affairs, concerned about his own home, his, his own wealth, his own well-being, and became in that way unable to see the miracle of god and as those miracles increased he increased his the hardening of his heart right but the scripture writers oftentimes speak from a human perspective and therefore kind of humanize god and what he allows to take place because the lord could intervene right he could yeah. force a situation. He can intervene in a miraculous way as he did in the life of St. Paul. He doesn't always do that, right? But he sometimes he does do it. And sometimes he does do it, does it and we still are blind, right? Which is what Jesus is looking at as he's looking out over Jerusalem. I mean, gee whiz, three years of walking on water, healing the blind, healing the paralytics. It's not enough already? Uh, Cyrus, God, God, you know, inspires Cyrus, and all this. He wakes up on the wrong side of the bed one morning, as far as his wife is concerned, and gives away the farm. I mean, he yeah. gives away the gold. He gives away. I mean, go back to Jerusalem. Go, and then you're probably thinking all the all his yeah. all his uh, court like uh, wise men are going. What <laughs> you're doing? What <laughs> right? But the Lord is acting this powerful way in his life. But most often, even when the Lord acts in that way, we still become blind because we've been so focused upon ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, yeah. that's my yeah. answer. I remember my husband having a conversation with a friend who had fallen away very much. And he's like, well, if God would just come down and like knock me over the, you know, the back of the head. 
I'd believe in him again. And Will said, would you really believe that that was God when it happened? He like, should have picked up a two by four. <laughs> you know what? Will is just too gentle for such things. <laughs> yeah, He's a I mean, more Sicilian in his life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a good point. The, um, um, you think about, well, I mean, you can think of so many examples. You like when I think about the way that the people who are pro-abortion react when they see pictures of aborted yeah. babies, for yeah. instance, and it's almost like they just get even more gung ho about it. Yeah, it's just, yeah. But so, but now but now let's examples. let's turn this. Can we turn this to the positive? Role yeah. No, absolutely. I'm just like, you know. No. So uh, on the positive side of the whole thing, and that is that that those that are participating in this Sunday gospel reflection, okay, let's let's set aside all of the others and start talking about ourselves for a moment. Ourselves, yeah. Because because Isaiah says, form, form me, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what our, our psalm our psalm's all about in Psalm 80. Yeah. Our responsorial psalm this coming Sunday is is all about this kind of crying out to the Lord to act in our life because I don't care how strong you are. You ain't going to get it done by yourself. There's a, that's the funny thing about the relationship, right? Is that the Lord, the Lord is the only one that really can act, but he won't act without our opening our hearts to that act, that action. Our right? willing to receive it. Our willingness to receive. Right. And that's what Psalm 80, Lord, make us turn to you. Let us see your face and we shall be saved. O shepherd of Israel, right? The, the same idea back in Isaiah. O shepherd of Israel, hearken from your throne upon the cherubim, shine forth, rouse your power and come to save us. Notice that invitation to the Lord to act. Once again, O Lord of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Take care of this vine and protect what your right hand has planted. The son of man whom you yourself made strong. May your help be with the man of your right hand, with the son of man whom you yourself made strong. Then we will no more with, withdraw from you. Give us new life and we will call upon your name. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I would really encourage all of our participants here, a Sunday Gospel Reflection, to sing this psalm this Sunday. And if you're not singing it in church, sing it in your heart sing it in your home to call out to the Lord uh, and, and just to say those words, you know, Lord, make us turn to you. I mean, and this is, this is the really, the spiritual conversion cry of this Sunday. The theme of this Sunday is this opening of our hearts intentionally to ask the Lord to act in our lives, to become, to come and be present with us an invitation and this, during this time period of this kind of preparation. How beautiful is on the first Sunday of that preparation that these are the words that we're we're calling out. Lord, come out of come out of heaven, make your dwelling with me. Come and dwell here and change my life because I've been struggling to uh, walk in your ways, and I know you're the only one that can save me. Yeah. So there it is, Psalm eighty. Beautiful, Mark before, chapter thirteen. Uh, before yeah. Before we turn to the gospel, before we turn to the gospel. I want to ask members of a Sunday Gospel Reflection, reach out and share this gift with your friends that we do a little study every week. There's a lot of people that go to Mass on Sunday that, you know, they don't know what's going on in Isaiah, right? And so when the psalm, the responsible psalm comes, it's kind of like, kind of dead on arrival in some ways because it doesn't have the background, that context is necessary that I can then associate with it. So maybe you want to get a little ad in your in your parish bulletin for the Institute of Catholic Culture, Sunday Gospel Reflections, something like that. Not a bad idea. Share the gift that you have received. Be formed by the Lord, who has, as I think it was uh, Pope John Paul II said, is Christ who is the great evangelizer, right? Form me, Lord, to do your will, to go out into your, into your vineyard um, and bring the good news. Okay, Mark chapter 13. 13. Verse? Yeah. 33. Mark, I thought we were in Matthew. Yeah, we have flipped the calendar year, and so now... We've abandoned Matthew? We've left Matthew, 
and we are now into Mark. Why are we starting in Mark in, in, in chapter 13? Yeah, this is a very good question that I was going to kind of ask. So, yeah. Well, maybe we should read it and we might get some some clues. Let's go ahead. Mark 13, verse 33. All right, here we go. Jesus said to his disciples, be watchful, be alert. You do not know when the time will come. It is like a man traveling abroad. He leaves home and places his servants in charge, each with his own work, and orders the gatekeeper to be on the watch. Watch, therefore. You do not know when the Lord of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at cockcrow or in the morning. May he not come suddenly and find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to all, watch. That's one way to end a gospel. Yeah, exactly. I guess we can sleep in the afternoon. He's not coming. He didn't mention the afternoon. Yeah. I'm just kidding. Okay, so like I said, as we we flip into this new liturgical year for the the Roman Catholic Church and start in this year, I mean, mostly I was kind of flipping through to see, and it looks like we're going to be staying with Mark for most of the liturgical year this year. Is there anything that that you would like us to know about Mark as we kind of set out on this journey with him over the next liturgical year? Yes. That's not the question I thought you were going to ask first, but I will certainly answer that question first quickly, and then um, we can associate, we can get our, our our footing into the gospel where we're standing. Yeah, okay, absolutely. Yeah. So Mark is Mark is a disciple, was a disciple of Saint Peter. So you might want to turn your Bible actually to Mark chapter one, and see Mark chapter one. And you might write, uh, this is what I did in my Bible. I right next to it it says the gospel according to Mark. I put a little dash disciple of of Peter. Mm. And then right underneath that or right above it, whatever, I wrote two passages, which I'd encourage you to write into your Bible. It's 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. That's 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. And 1 Peter. 513. 1 Peter 513. Both of these passages, we don't have to go to them. Both of them mention Mark. Mark was a was the tradition tells us a disciple of Peter. And he's man, of course, mentioned in that way in 1 Peter, but also St. Paul knew him and traveled with him. So here's that's in, in 2 Timothy 4:11. So as Paul's writing to Timothy, he mentions Mark. So those two passages mention mentioned the gospel writer but as i said mark was a disciple of saint peter so in some sense we can say this is peter's gospel yeah sure. and with that we can jump into the gospel and kind of get our footing of where we're at okay yeah yeah so uh like we were mentioning we're right in the middle of things here it's almost like we we jump from matthew straight over to mark in kind of the same time period maybe i don't know can you tell us like what is going on in the life of Jesus in the gospel of Mark in, in chapter sure. 13. Sure. Well, the first and easiest thing to do is to look at chapter 14, verse one, which our next verse, hmm. it was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread and the ch- chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by still. Okay. So that's the, that's where we're at, right? He's Jesus has, has come into Jerusalem. And just as we've been looking at over the last few weeks with Sunday gospel reflections, he's, back and forth in the Temple Mount, teaching uh, Temple Mount and then Mount of Olives, right? Last week, he was seated on the Mount of Olives and in a, kind of almost judging Jerusalem. It was that kind of cosmic. We looked at, we shared with, with the panoramic of the city, yeah. right? And so if we look here now at Mark chapter 13, chapter 13, no, chapter, well, chapter 12, chapter 12, verse 35, and as he taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say, okay, and so forth. And look at verse 41. Well, look at verse, look at verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes 
who like to go about in their long robes and have their salutations in the marketplaces. We've been looking at this in the Gospel of Matthew, right? He's going after them, right hand, left hand, uppercut, right? And then verse 41, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the multitude putting money into the treasury and many rich people putting large sums. And the poor widow came and put in the two coins. So here he is, you know, in the temple teaching, just as we were, we were, seen in Matthew chapter 25. And we can we can flip there for a moment if you want to just go over with me just so that we can get our touch our touch bases with where we were in the gospel of Matthew. Right? Matthew chapter 25 where Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came and point out to him the point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he said, you see all these do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be one left here, one, one stone upon another. Hold your hand there and look at chapter 13, verse 1 of Mark. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful building. Jesus said, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be a left one here, one stone upon another. Okay, now stop. Keep your hand there. Flip back to Matthew. And then look at Matthew 24, verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, right, and then he begins, he begins basically his co- cosmic, right, his cosmic judgment of the city, which is a cosmos, a mi- sorry, a microcosmos, a microcosm of the. He starts talking in 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 cataclysmic terms. Okay, yeah. uh, most Bible scholars will tell us that Jesus here is prophesying ultimately the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD uh, when not one stone will be left on another and and for those that have been to Jerusalem you know or seen pictures of Jerusalem you know hey wait a minute the Jews pray in front of the wailing wall there's stones left one upon another that is not the temple okay those are foundation stones which were originally underground yes and the Jews have dug those out and made a, a wall that they can pray at, okay? That entire uh, area uh, called the Wailing Wall, that whole, you know what that was in 1948? That was a, a, a Palestinian neighborhood. And the Jews came in and bulldozed it and marched all the people out, all the Christians that were living there, out of the city. And made a nice courtyard for themselves so they could have their wailing wall, which is really just a foundation wall that they dug out, right? Mm-hmm. And why there? Why not on the other side where the Temple Mount drops pre- precipitously into the Kidron Valley where there is no, you know, housing area, right? So this is what happened. You need to know the truth of it. Don't look at that and think that's a stem, you know, wall of the temple. No, 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 no. Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD. But there you are in chapter 24, verse 3, you sat on the Mount of Olives, and now I'm flipping back to Mark, and we're in chapter chapter 13, verse 3, and as he sat down on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. There you have it. That's what's yeah. going on now. And now he's teaching them, overlooking the city, and this is what we get in Mark chapter 13, verse 33. Okay, so you mentioned that this Bible scholars say that this was the prophesying of the destruction of Jerusalem. We often look at these as sort of end times kind of prophecies. Is that an appropriate way to look at a passage like this? Yeah. Well, first of all, why do we why do we say this was fulfilled by 70 AD? Because If you take a look at at Mark chapter 13, verse 30, Mm -hmm. truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away before all these things take place. So Jesus obviously is not. So what's Jesus talking about? He's talking about these cosmic things going on. Well, Jerusalem in the Old Testament is oftentimes spoken of in these terms. Mm -hmm. In fact, we we get the the restoration of all things talked about in similar terms. Jerusalem coming out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. Right. So Jerusalem is understood as this microcosm of the entire universe. So things that are universe related can be can reflect what the Jews believed about the temple. 
And uh, but but as you ask a good question, can this be applied then to the second coming? The answer is absolutely yes. And this is why the church is placing this text before us now, because liturgically, we know no time. Liturgically, Christ is born today. Liturgically, uh, what did I say to somebody? We are a people of of uh, realized eschaton. <laughs> Okay, that is <laughs> that which is to come has been realized today. Yeah? yeah, yeah, yeah. The kingdom which is to come is made present now liturgically, and so and so the church places before us and says, "Watch, be ready, because Jesus is about to be born of the Virgin Mary." Read, he's coming, and he's already here, but he's going to reveal himself in a powerful way. And 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 the soul is given this time of preparation. This is I I love this as a pastor. Our faith is always this newness. It's a new calling, right? No matter how many times you fall into sin, there's always this opportunity, right? Get ready that the Lord is coming. In a couple of months, it's going to be Pascha. It's going to be Easter. The Lord is coming. Get ready. The Lord's coming. Is the Feast of the Transfiguration. Get your hearts ready for the coming of the Lord so that these realities can be made present in your life. Jesus wasn't born 2,000 years ago for Jesus. He was born for you and for me. The Virgin Mary's preparation to become the tabernacle of the Most High was a prep, was a, a beginning for all of us. Is we just saying in our Byzantine tradition about the feast of the entry of the Mother of God into the temple. Today is the prelude of the benevolence of God. And that benevolence of God is for all of us. Yeah, to get our hearts ready to become the tabernacles of the Most High. To, to be the ones who go out and give birth, if you will, to the Word of God. To go become evangelists in the, in the image and likeness of the great evangelizer. Yeah? And I mean, I guess that's why it's important to not know the day or the hour right that then we have to constantly be vigilant we can't just take a nap and wait for that day saint athanasius makes this point listen to this he says the end of all things is concealed from us for in the end of all is well he gets it's a little bit of, of uh, you know the father's the, for in the end of all is the end of each and in the end of each is the end of all on the last day. Whereas this time is uncertain and always prospect that we may advance day by day as if summoned, reaching forward to the things before us and forgetting things behind. For who, if they knew the day of the end, would not disregard the interval? So these things are hidden from us that we might take time to get ourselves ready. And I was, you know, I was, what occurred to me, I was, I was looking at this, Annie. Yeah. In the context of the gospel here, it may be not so applicable to um, what I'm saying here about the liturgical time. But here in the gospel, he's saying, be, you know, be on guard, be on guard. And notice the next. So that's how he says, watch the end of the gospel, right? Mm -hmm. Watch. And then if the chapter break isn't there, because the chapter breaks late. It was now two days before the Passover. Well, what happened? The Passover, the angel of death came and slaughtered the firstborn of Egypt. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Be on guard. Watch. Be ready to go. You're about get to get ready to start on your journey to the promised land. The Lord is about to appear and he's about to free you from the bondage of the enemy that you can make your journey back home. Be on guard that your life isn't taken. When the angel of death passes over. So there's a whole other layer and a whole other level that's so it's quite it's quite beautiful. Listen, listen to St. Augustine before we move on. He says, The first coming of Christ, the Lord, God's Son, and our God, was in obscurity. The second will be in sight of the whole world. When he came in obscurity, no one recognized him but his own servants. When he comes openly, he will be known by both the good and the bad. When he came in obscurity, it was to be judged. When he comes openly, it will be to judge. He was silent at his trial, as the prophet foretold, silent when accused. He will not be silent as a judge. Even now, he does not keep silent, if there is anyone to listen. But it says he 
But it says he will not keep silent then because his voice will be acknowledged even by those who despise it. Okay. It's, Let all mortal flesh yes, keep exactly. silent. Man. There you yep. Man, that's incredible. Well, why don't we look at the epistle, which, you know, it's just kind of a greeting from St. Paul, but gives us this indication so much like he's talking to us as we are preparing just yeah. as, as the Corinthians would be. Yep. So first Corinthians is, uh, chapter first Corinthians. one, first Corinthians chapter one. We're going to start with, start with verse three, verse three. All right, here we go. Brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always on your account for the grace of God bestowed on you in Christ Jesus, that in him you were enriched in every way with all discourse and all knowledge as the testimony to Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep you firm to the end irreproachable on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, and by him you were called to fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I, I've got to go back one verse, because I think that in, in the context of what we've been talking about, especially in the responsorial psalm, um, about opening our hearts to the Lord, but listen, listen to this in verse 2. The church of God, which is at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you in peace, right? So this 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 um this uh this importance of, of calling upon the Lord, inviting him into our hearts. You know. I was, uh, again, going back to the feast of the entrance of the mother of God in the temple, which we just celebrated on uh, November 21st, thinking about Mary's preparation, the temple, the, the tradition tells us that Mary, three years old, was brought to the temple and then dedicated to the temple. She remained in the temple in the Holy of Holies and there ministering to the Lord. And there she was fed by an angel and how her heart was prepared to become the temple of God. I've said before that a martyr is uh, a martyr must, has to be a martyr before he's martyred. Otherwise, he won't be a martyr when he's martyred, right? Yep. See, mar it's one of my favorite Father Hezekiah's lines. Right? Yeah. So, to be a witness, right? Well, you, you're not going to witness with your life unless you've already witnessed with your life, right? You're not yeah. going to have the strength to do it at the end if you haven't been doing it all along. And so a martyr has to be a martyr for his martyr. He's going to be a martyr when he martyred. The tabernacle of the Most High, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the living temple of God, the Virgin Mary. I was just thinking about this, as thinking about that feast and how she spent those years in the temple. And in that time, she became a temple, a living temple, because God came to dwell within her, not in the flesh, as he did at the incarnation, but in his spirit and because of, of prayer and of fasting and preparation and of invitation, because she called upon the name of the Lord, he came and dwelt within her. And that is an invitation to all of us. And here, St. Paul says of Corinthians, all those who call upon the name of the Lord. And then he says, as you wait. So there's the two kind of movements. I call upon the name of the Lord and I wait for his revelation. I wait for his coming. The one who has already come, right? As we're talking that realized eschaton, right? We, we celebrate now a reality which we, which we wait to partake of. We receive communion now with the one whom we will commune with for all eternity. But no one will commune with him for all eternity if he's not communed with him now. Right? No one will realize his second coming who has not, who has not yearned for his presence in their life. This time of preparation, Advent, is a time of getting our souls, ourselves ready. And I really encourage all of our Institute of Catholic Culture participants. Uh, traditionally, this was a time of fasting, not a time of feasting. 
This was a time of of real spiritual exercise. That's why the church calls us during this time to fasting, to increasing our prayer, to almsgiving, to getting our hearts ready, to making this a time in which we do now what we want to do for all eternity. Um, And if we do that, if we invest now, as I was telling my my parishioners, sorry to kind of make a little funny joke here at the end, but I said, look, I said, you want Santa Claus to be, you know, come into your house on Christmas morning. Uh, Go ahead, you know, eat your, eat, eat, drink and be merry, right? But Christians don't get shacked up before a marriage and Christians don't celebrate Christmas before Christmas. We get ourselves ready. Yes, and we do so by beginning to live that life which God wants us to live for all eternity, that life of self-giving love. Yeah, um, and so I, I, I conclude as I did last week with an invitation to all of you. The Institute of Catholic Culture is for me very much a vocation, vocation which why I may give to you through bringing uh, amazing teachers bringing Annie Mitchells into your into your homes to teach, to share the good news. And I invite you to participate in this ministry to do that for others, to be that evangelizer in the image and likeness of the great evangelizer and to be formed by the one who forms mankind into his sons, that we might be light to others as God has been light to us. So I encourage you to charitably support the Institute of Catholic Culture, our mission here, as generously as you possibly can. We have a a goal, there's a significant goal, $500,000 that we want to raise before the end of the year. And that can only happen if a miracle takes takes place. And if that miracle takes place, and I'm confident in the Lord, I'm confident in the generosity of God's people, that it will, then we can receive that miracle and then become a miracle for others. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages and ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.